You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No simplified funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, I've got Vishal Buyan, who is the CEO and founder of Anika Biosciences. Previously, he used to be a portfolio manager at a couple of big names, and he's the author of a really, really interesting book on investing called the esoteric investor where he talks about some very interesting investments and uh investment theses like investing in water trading fish in japan and trading mortality risk and it's going to be very interesting to uh to cover some of those themes and you know thank you so much for being on the podcast michelle it's great to have you hey thanks so much um and thank you for having me on it's it's i love your uh, i love your podcast and excited to delve into these things absolutely so michelle before we get started on some of the market stuff. Could you sort of give the back, uh, the audience an overview of your background, your journey on Wall Street, and you know, how you uh, how you got to, uh, you know, finding Annika Biosciences? Yeah, sure. So uh, I actually started my career. Uh, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Ended up as a trader, uh, commodities trader first uh, for uh, a big trader on the NYMEX. Um, this was right before the credit crisis, and I got very involved into these sort of esoteric derivatives, um, everything ranging from insurance-linked securities to catastrophe bonds um, to uh, mortality risk, longevity risk, um, and just that really captivated my, my sort of imagination in the, in the finance world and how do we link things that are happening in the real world to these, you know, to these financial, um, very tangible financial risks and you know, how do we mitigate those risks? Um, and so that I spent, I don't know, pretty much the better part of a decade uh, working at a couple of different hedge funds. Um, one was sort of a, a pool of family office capital, um, using everything from creating our own derivatives to credit default swaps, interest rate swaps, to hedge these various risks um, for various parties. And so then moving towards you know 2016, um, 2017, I started looking at you know what are the big to this same sort of theme, you know, what are the big trends of the next 10, 20 years? Uh, and all of my sort of, all of my pointers were looking at, you know, this, this thing called synthetic biology. I sort of just stumbled upon it, but it was the, 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 the basic concept that biotechnology will be outside of the pharmaceutical realm, right? So how do we, you know, how do we apply biology to crops and, to seafood and to all the different topics that I've always been fascinated with to, to the natural world around us. And how do we engineer this world and improve it essentially from my thesis uh, to protect against things like climate volatility. And, and that was really, and the founding of Annika was really the culmination of like that 10 year experience looking at both the world around us and, and uh, financial instruments in, 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 in a weird way, it makes, probably makes more sense in my head than it does uh, out loud, but. Yep. And, and so, you know, what actually got you in, so how did you actually find your way into, so you said you were a commodity trader and you ended up trading some, I guess, more esoteric, you know, to use the title yeah. of your book, uh, market. So how did you actually find your way into it? And is, uh, so is that mostly like OTC, you know, reserve? Yeah, for, at the, like, at the, the time it was all, at the time it was all OTC. I think, <clears throat> like CDS and stuff now is, is a little bit electronic, but at the time, or, I mean, even the NYMEX, like commodity futures were traded in the pit. So right. um, if you think about commodities, right, what impacts commodities? It's weather, right? So, you know, it's not a huge push to think about, you know, the, the, the way it was sort of being looked at was, um, okay, you've got weather risk, you know, that sort of my pathway was, okay, you've got these huge weather um these huge, these huge weather events. Uh, and then, okay, like who protects against these things, right? It's insurance companies, who, where do they do with their risk? Who's warehousing their risk? It's 
it's reinsurance companies. There are these things called catastrophe bonds. So basically what you have are groups of hedge funds pooling capital together to take to warehouse some risk for insurance companies. Um, and they act as their own sort of independent insurance vehicles. A lot of them are domiciled, you know, in Bermuda and stuff. Um, and they've got their own yield. So it's, it's literally like a bond. Um, and you've got various parameters, um, you know, whether the hurricane is going to be, you know, a, a certain level or there's certain damage. Um, and all of that is constructed to diversify the risk of an insurance carrier, right? So um, actually, Michael, um, Michael Lewis wrote a, a great article about this back then. I think it was called like Nature's Casino. Um, but you're not actually gambling on it. You're really, you're really actually protecting insurance companies, but it was, yep. it's an entertaining article. But what, you know, an easy way to think about this is if you're an insurance company insuring all of the homes in Florida, let's say, guess what? Like everyone who comes to you for a policy is probably going to need a payout, right? And that's against the sort of business model of an insurance company who has to diversify across like a very broad set of, you know, a broad spectrum. So it doesn't get, um, so it doesn't get that, uh, that, that, that windfall. Um, that windfall liability. So what they'll do is offset that through reinsurance vehicles or catastrophe bonds. And so when you looked at the commodities markets, that just captivated me that this there's this sort of multi-layer approach yep. at risk. And, and again, this is not like mortgage default risk, which is what everyone else was looking at back then. This uh -huh. was, you know, Hurricane Katrina risk. And I found it really fascinating that you know, I think in finance too, you get a lot of things where <clears throat> what's the point of that? The credit crisis was a great example, right? Right after the credit crisis, like, you know, Wall Street was like getting blamed for everything. But then you don't really, you don't really see the inner workings of how important these financial markets are because like things couldn't operate otherwise, you know? Uh, and so that's what really like, that's what really captivated my imagination in terms of um, just how, how fascinated I was in uh, when it came to this risk management approach of using derivatives and, and bonds and stuff to, uh, to diversify um, some of this. Yep. And, you know, your first big theme that you discussed in your book was talking about mortality risk markets and demographics. So could you sort of discuss, number one, the demographic theme? So pretty much, uh, pretty much what's going on is aging demographics and, you know, how exactly you use mortality. Oh, well, what are mortality risk markets? How do they work? And, now, how you actually use uh, use them to you know sort of play? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So once once I was like once I got into this idea that everything is a risk that can be quantified to a certain extent, mm -hmm. you know, not perfectly, but like you, you can think about it in a in a sort of a um, you can put a a price on it and a, put a number on it, and you can figure out what, how big this problem is based on on the insurance protection. I really just went down a, a wormhole in terms of like, okay, well, what else is interesting in this space, right? Like what else is being done? And at the time, one of the things that I really came, uh, came across that was fascinating was that the idea that as a society, as humans, we're just living longer, right? We're healthier. We have better access to healthcare. Um, the emerging markets, it, you know, back then, again, emerging markets were a massive theme. What happens when, 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 countries come out of poverty, uh, they live longer. So what does that mean to, you know, things like your pension? Like, what does it mean to, to, to institutions that actually are structured on the, around the fact that like, you'll probably die at, you know, 70, when really we're going to start dying in our late 80s. Yep. And so when you talk about first, firstly, longevity risk, which is the entire pension system, social security and all of this, is, is geared for 65-year-old retirees, which now a 65-year-old, like if you see a 65-year-old at the gym, you know, he's putting up like 200 pounds. It, it doesn't make sense, right? Like exactly. uh, my co-founder, she's, she's uh, in her late 60s or, you know, she'll kill me. She's going to kill me, but she, <laughs> I, can, I can, she's never going to, she can never hear this. Uh, but she just hiked the Grand Canyon for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? So it, it's just a different world. So what does that mean is that we're going to have a pension crisis. <laughs> the pension crisis is going to be massive. I, I, by some estimates, I've, I've looked at the numbers as 
I think by 2050, it's an estimated $400 trillion uh, of pension shortfall globally. Um, And in 2017, I think that number was like, again, I'm I'm going off the top of my head here, but 15 trillion or 10 trillion. Like we're talking about massive numbers, a shortfall of like five to 7% a year. And then you couple that with negative interest rates, essentially no yield, zero yield anywhere. I mean, the numbers just add up to a massive pension crisis. Um, you look at, and, and, then, and then a slowing birth rate globally, right? Um, at least in the developed world. And so you've got this idea of both longevity and mortality risk, which is, so, so the longevity risk part of it is, okay, if we live longer, that's, that's, by the way, that's a net good thing, right? We should be living longer and healthier, but our system is not necessarily like structured for it or prepared for it. So what do you do if you're, a, um, if you're an insurance company, uh, what do you do, or you're a life insurance company, um, sorry, yeah, so if you're in a pension, what do you do if you're paying out for an extra 15 years you didn't calculate for, um, but you're also not generating enough on your capital base to, to make those payments? right? Like it's a really bad situation. And by the way, our entire financial system is sort of built on top of that. And then if you look at the mortality risk side, you can have a a situation where, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of in, in reverse, right? So if you think about the people who, and there are like building markets of this, who are trying to hedge that, and this is kind of screwed up, but it is, it is what it is they're not betting that people will die sooner. They're just providing the other side of that bet, right? Like they're providing liquidity. Think about it that way. Mm -hmm. And so if you're providing liquidity, the longer your portfolio lives, the better. (laughs) So how do you, how do you offset the risk of let's say a disease outbreak? And honestly, this conversation probably would have sounded much more ridiculous. Like, I don't know, a few years ago, but you know, now, you know, in the context with the backdrop of COVID, um, you can see that outbreaks can happen, right? Things can happen. So there are these markets that are developing, and I think they have to develop to, to, to make sense of some of these things that are just, they're just numerical facts, right? A pension shortfall is a numerical fact. So, um, so yeah, so, so that's how, that's sort of how I morphed into both looking at, you know, natural catastrophes, and uh, insurance risk and longevity risk and mortality risk, but it's really all the same lens, right? You've got these really big impactful risks that need to be priced and need to be diversified. Same with water. Um, we're talking about water shortages. And what's interesting about this is that, you know, at the time that my book came out, uh, it was somewhat novel, but now water futures actually do trade in California, I believe. So, I mean, we, we really are moving to these, to these structures to, uh, to diversify. Yep. And, and, so, and so how exactly do you go about trading, uh, trading uh, longevity and uh, mortality risk? So, so could you sort of talk about, you know, I guess from, from like a trade construction standpoint, how you, how you did it as a professional portfolio manager, but at the same time, how would sort of an average investor you know, be able to play that sort of team? So not, most of these were OTC. So that's probably going to be out of touch mostly for the, for the average retail investor. So a lot of times what you had were, um, so Goldman tried to, I think, I don't know if it still exists, but Goldman at one point put an index out um, and it was a longevity index. And what they were trying to benchmark was, was like the average life expectancy. And you could buy a bond of some sort it was more of a swap actually. And you could basically get, you could be the fixed payer or the fixed receiver, depending on your portfolio. It's sort of like, so, you know, you've got a portfolio, let's say, whatever, it's some sort of instrument. And if the cohort, the general population of that co- cohort outlived a certain parameter, then you're the receiver of the swap and vice versa. Wow. So a lot of this comes down to, and I, and I know your audience is probably more looking for what ETFs and, and stuff like that. Um, no, no, go ahead and at. explain sort of the swap trade as well. So, Okay, yeah, exactly. So it, it's all similar to that. So everything was very OTC. 
And look, that's one of the problems with all of this uh, is that it's very complicated and very like, like very, they're very complicated and they're very liquid. It was another big problem, right? So the, the only people who are really playing in these markets were like insurers, reinsurers, big hedge funds, specialty funds kind of thing. Um, because it took a lot of, you know, not everyone's got, you know, access to their personal actuary <laughs> or, or whatever. Yep. So it's like, they're very, they're very complex. Another way people were looking at this though was uh, buying life insurance policies. So if you think of, um, and, and these, these, these still happen, they're called life settlements. And so you've got, let's say a bunch of people, you know, call them 500 people want to sell their life insurance policies, or maybe it's one person with like a $10 million life insurance policy. You know, actually have investors who will give you, you know, whatever the net present value uh, to a certain extent uh, of your face value of your life insurance policy. Let's say you've got a $10 million policy. It's like, we'll give you $6 million today and we'll take over the premium payments. And when you pass away, we collect the $10 million. And that sounds maybe like a bad thing, but in a lot of instances, it can be a good thing because these people are using that money to pay off, let's say a loan or they're high net worth people um, or the insurance company. Like it, it's just another way of risk management to a certain point, right? Or maybe they don't think that the, the insurance carriers very reliable. So this was also, again, 2006, 2007. So all these new markets were, um, were emerging to try to diversify some of this risk. I don't know how big any of these really got, to be honest. Um, I know obviously reinsurance is a little bit different, but the problems are still there. Yep. <laughs> so, so I am not exactly sure these are, these are solving any of these things yet, but I think it was a first crack. But I do think there's a massive opportunity in how we we look at this. Like I mentioned, the pension shortfall risk. I mean, that's just that's just coming. <laughs> it's like yep. that is just like a very that's like a there's a very real um, real thing that's that's like on the horizon. And from my recollection, the only Stanley Drunkenmiller is one of the only people I I read about who was like actively talking about it. Um, yep. I don't hear much else to be honest. Yep, and. And you know, there's a, you also describe reverse equity transactions sort of as a way for you know, an individual to uh, extract uh, equity from an asset without using credit, but you know, it's sort of taking advantage of longer life expectancy. So could you sort of explain how, yeah. how, how that works? Of course. So like, so again, at the time it was all about home equity loans, right? So tapping your home for equity based on credit. But the real, the way I was looking at this is too, is could you um, have a mortgage? So, so there's a cheesy thing called reverse mortgages where, you know, a lot of these things start as like, I don't know, ways for like very small time, you know, maybe, I don't know. But like, like you know, like in like, t um, some of them like take advantage of old people and they'll like take equity of their house or whatever. And that's sort of how they start. But the basic principle, that was like the first version. I think that may have been like the 70s or something. But then this sort of like 3.0 version came where it was, it's not an individual person, but like you have swaths of homes now um, and people are just getting older. Can they actually remove equity out of their house um, in what's called a reverse equity transaction? So um, they're essentially getting, they're almost getting bought out of their house, but they can live there. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a strange thing. Like people will continue to pay their mortgage payments. And when they pass away, they can, their house, like everything is it just goes to the investor. So it's like a weird way where people can cash out but not have to give up their house. And so it's almost a cousin to renting. And so what you're seeing now, what's funny is that a lot of this stuff back then seemed so weird. But now, if you've seen how things have played out, played out for the last decade, I think, what is it, Apollo or Blackstone's like one of the biggest residential landlords in the United States. So it's almost exactly what's happened in a lot of ways. Like, like so many things have panned out um, in this way for, for, for a variety of reasons. And after the credit crisis, so much, so much has changed. But they, the basic idea of this is that, you know, like, 
the way we look at equity and home ownership needs to change also based off like like there's another variable here and that's our age and how long we're going to live and so you know you're like you're like the cash flows may may not match up if you're an individual uh and you're retired or whatever uh and you've got this mortgage on your on your on your on your back so can you tap that equity but still have to you know not have to give up your house the only thing you're really giving up is essentially not leaving your home to a loved one but you're leaving it to an investor who's allowed you to live there to no change to your lifestyle who's taken over the taking over the, the debt obligations Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so to be honest, and back then they were mortgage-backed securities and they're reverse mortgage-backed securities. So it's, it's really crazy. But again, it, it's, it's even wilder to me that like, again, one of these big private equity firms is the biggest landlord in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it is crazy because when you think about it, that was sort of when, you know, all the crazy housing products came in. Uh, it's uh, it's almost in a way like in hindsight sort of not surprising but at the same time still mind-blowing you know oh yeah no there was like there was there just there were so many things that were being like so the bit the, you know the problem is i think this is a problem with all technologies and all innovation it's like we get super excited about it and we like go nuts about it and then it dies down and then like maybe 10 years after that it comes back in some in a useful way you know what yeah. i mean it's like yep we need to have our like, Oh my God, like kid in a candy store moment. Like derivatives are a great example trying to securitize everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think now that, okay, maybe I think some of these things are a little bit crazy, but um, you know, if you really look at things like how can we look at water in a different way? Right. So one of the big sort of theses I have always had is, or, 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 or thoughts of ours. It's like, we don't treat water with any respect because we all think it's free. <laughs> yep. Do you know what I mean? Like if you put a value on it, I feel it could be treated better. You, you know, we, it's like companies dump, corporations just dump waste into rivers wow. because it's free. You know, one of the best things like uh, someone told me was that, you know, Coca-Cola and some of these companies, they suck all the water, especially in places like India, right? suck it from all the farmers right underneath their farms. They're creating drought everywhere. They dump sugar and color into it and sell it back as thumbs up. It's like, it's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous, right? Because their, ne- their main ingredient is pretty much, is essentially free. And it, but how does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. It's like literally, it's completely insane, right? Like you're, if you're, your absolute base material of your product is 100% free, like how that just doesn't make any sense in like in a regular situation. That's exactly what's happening. So like there should be a, a massive, I don't know about massive, but there should be some cost to it. There, if there's a market for it, you know, maybe that's not the answer. This is a back of the envelope thing, but if there's some sort of, you know, if there's some sort of value to it, like maybe that things like that shouldn't happen and there are more protective uh, measures taken for um for let's i'm just saying you know farmers in india or whomever but i think right now if you think it's free you know people don't treat it with any respect yep yep and we'll get to we'll get to the water theme in just a bit but first uh but i wanted to cover the second theme in your book which was trading fish and so so you know as far as i'm as far as i know there are there aren't any uh, very commonly traded say fish futures or anything. So how do you, how do you actually go? So number one, what was the thesis for fish? Is it, is it along the same, you know, longer life expectancy, demographic kind of change or, uh, and, no, and so it's, Oh, sorry, go ahead. And, and, and you know, just, uh, just uh, again, no, how do you, how do you actually think about trade construction uh, for, for, uh, for, uh, for another extremely esoteric market? So a lot of these things actually, um, so a lot of these things actually looked at putting together my own futures contracts. So wow. for this for this one, um, it always fascinated me. And, and to be honest, <clears throat> even now, and and to tie this sort of what we're doing now in the in the biotech world, even there's certain elements, um, there's certain elements of, let's say there's certain ingredients, let's say, or you know, that that impact every product in in biotechnology. Or let's say there's certain ingredients that can are a huge bottleneck for lab grown meat, for example. So 
the same thing is with uh, with tuna in this case. Like this is a it's just a supply and demand thing, right? So you've got tuna fish that can sell for five hundred thousand dollars because we're literally overfishing them. I think somewhere uh, I read that there's more sushi restaurants in New York City than there are pizzerias now, right? So you've <laughs> wow. got like this massive boom in appetite for, you know, for fish, uh, for seafood, for protein, protein, generally speaking, but, but also for fish, uh, especially tuna. And that creates this massive problem from, for like both like a, an environmental perspective, because we're like literally, we've crushed the oceans. Um, and that goes back to sort of the water theme, which is, we have no respect for it because we sort of just feel like it's free. Um, and then two, um, it's, it's, it creates a problem in terms of just how, like, like price volatility, right? So I think markets can be, markets can be sort of a solution for some of these things where like if they're naturally priced, I think it could, again, it's just so interesting to have this conversation so many years after after that book came together, because now when I go into Netflix, you know, there's so many documentaries about how we've like destroyed the oceans and the water and all of this stuff, other stuff. But it's interesting because back then, like, I don't really think people were thinking about it like that, but it, it can create some like price stability. And not only that, even if the prices are really high in a weird way, that spurs innovation for alternatives, right? So yep. that, that my, my sort of rationale there wasn't really about, it's not really about capturing a pro it's 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 both right when, when when there's an opportunity to make a profit that that's like a good thing right so when oil prices are really skyrocketing high what happens you see innovation in like in ev right so exactly like like people look at it as people look at everything too like in a very binary way <clears throat> but that's not how, like that's not the correct approach right so if if all of a sudden your spicy crunchy tuna roll was like $45. You're not going to get it. Yep. <laughs> You're going to yep. be like, screw this. Or what's the alternative? Maybe the alternative <clears throat> is a $20 lab grown spicy crunchy tuna roll. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And maybe, maybe you thought that was gross before, but maybe this is actually the right thing to do. And maybe that $25 crunchy spicy tuna roll will be $5 in five years. And, you know, we didn't have to destroy our, our ecosystem or oceans to, to get it onto your plate. So, you know, the, the, the basic thesis of all these things is that you, if, if things are priced according to the mania, then it'll also foster like an alternative. And now sitting here, like, I didn't know I'd end up running a biotech company, but like as a bio, you know, uh, you know, in the world of synthetic biology, uh, that's exactly what's happening, right? So you've got lab grown meat, lab grown um, there's lab grown honey that people are working on lab grown palm oil, lab grown, um, whatever, uh, mm -hmm. we work on, on an agricultural focus, but it's all about really alternatives to things. And all you need is sort of some sort of catalyst and that catalyst could be, you know, again, $45 crunchy spicy general for that lab grown fish to, to look a lot more appealing. Yep. Yep. And. I know it's interesting when you talk about it because it's because in a way usually what's happened with stuff like oil is when prices go high, you know, drilling drilling tends to go up. But as you talk, uh, do you think the dynamic for fishing would be different? Because if you overfish, the uh, if you if you end up overfishing, you know, you can't exactly, you know, there's there's actually uh, no incentive to sort of you know overfish the overfishing and increase the supply of fish, uh, increase the uh, supply of fish uh, like supply to the market, right? Yeah, no. So, okay. When, when, when oil prices go up, there's more drilling for sure. Yep. But to a certain point, you also get a, a race to find an alternative to it. That's true. Yep. You know, the, the biggest thing that crushed, I think, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the clean energy, the, when, when then oil prices crash, everyone's like, ah, forget it. <laughs> you yep. know what I mean? Let's go back to gas. It's so much better. So, you know, these things have both, they're sort of bifurcated in that sense. Um, and I think the same thing is with seafood, right? So, you know, um, I was watching, uh, I can't remember what documentary, it was one of these one of these kind of cooking shows or whatever. But what was great about it was that they were talking about eating meat in the future. 
and um actually Annika oh sorry Annika was on this uh, on a series of David Chang Hulu show Annika uh, bio was featured on on one of the episodes mm-hmm. but on, on another one they were talking about camel meat for example and like eating meat eating meat uh, as a scarcity so instead of eating meat every day maybe we'll go to eating meat once a week yep and maybe it's more expensive right but it'll be like a, a delicacy so you know to your point okay maybe people overfish <clears throat> or maybe it costs more but then naturally the balance to that is we eat it like once a week or or it becomes a real you know again like it's it's expensive but it's a rarity mm-hmm. and so okay. alternatives have to come and fill it up like fill up around it and maybe that's not lab grown stuff. Maybe it's like there's an impossible burger for, for tuna. I know I've actually had one. It was made of tomatoes. It was amazing. Um, wow. It literally couldn't taste a difference. I thought I was eating uh, like a, uh, an amazing piece of sushi. Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, the alternatives just, uh, just seemed to pop up. And you know, one, one, one other thing that you mentioned was you tried to initially get your own fish, uh, fish future, uh, fish futures market created, but uh, uh, but you know, so, so did that end up happening or, you know, how do you actually end up? You know, no, so what, so, so you, it's weird the, the CME and, and some of these big exchanges are, they're really cool. And they're like, if you've got a good idea and you, you can usually find a way in to be honest, well, if you've, you've been in the finance world, um, it, right. the real thing that comes into liquidity, like, like how liquid it will be, right. And who's going to make a market in it. And so, um, you know, crypto, even I, I remember, Exactly, because that was supposed to be my next question. So, you know, who would actually take like the other side of this trade? <laughs> no, exactly. So, so it's funny because now I feel like now things have changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so even back then, like crypto, I first came across crypto, not as it is now, <clears throat> but in, in a, it was almost a peer-to-peer money transfer uh, mechanism where the pitch, so somebody came to us was like, can you make markets in this? And I won't, I won't mention what the token was or whatever. Um, but like it wasn't, it had nothing to do with like a, owning a coin or the coin going up in value. Like this was 2010, I think, or no, maybe like 2012. <clears throat> but it was way before all of this, this craziness. And the pitch was, you can just get money from A to B really fast. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that makes sense. And then the other application was, you can settle a contract really quickly. So given that I'm in this like OTC space where settling contracts is like a week long endeavor and it's like highly, you know, there's is does between the banks and with the banks, there's all this, there's all this frictional cost and friction brain damage just to do a trade. The concept of a smart contract that could instantly settle something complicated was very fascinating. And so we spent a ton of time looking at this protocol, literally purely on the fact that this could be a way to launch, you know, to settle these complex contracts. And if you could do that, then maybe you could get more people to take, to answer your question, to take the other side of these weird trades. Yep. Right. So I don't, maybe then I don't need to get CME on board or whatever. Um, and find like, I don't need a retail investor to, to take the other side. I can just find like-minded people who want some kind of fringe exposure to stuff. And then the frictional cost in the middle would go down and the headache where we could just settle through smart contracts and that would bolster these, these markets. But again, it took to my earlier point, it took literally 10 years or eight years or whatever for these markets to, to go get to the point where they are now so now when you hear about like yield farming which is just really lending um like now might be the time to to explore all of this stuff but 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 back then it was all so it was everything was so new yep yep (laughs) yep it's it's insane because as you mentioned at the start you know pretty crazy that you know you could actually get the cme to list on these products and and i love the comparison to spot contracts and you know moving on talking about we're talking about blue gold or water so could you talk a little bit about one uh one the case for water but also you know 
Uh, you, ta- you, you, you mentioned the politics of water. So could you actually talk about, you know, how politics and geopolitics plays a role? Because, you know, people typically associate stuff like politics with something like oil, you know. Uh, you know, one bad thing happens in the Middle East, all of a sudden oil spikes. But, you know, here we've got, uh, uh, so could you explain, you know, how exactly geopolitics plays a role in the supply and demand of water? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I mean, it, you, you, like, it, it, it's just like oil, right? I mean, think about, think about how vital water is to our daily needs, right? It's funny because we don't think about it, I don't think. And, you know, what is that? you look at any river or look at any any water body of water it's like there are multiple countries touching it or multiple regions controlling different aspects of it right so you know is it creating electricity or, or whatever is it being diverted for you know agricultural irrigation or how is it being diverted right there's so many water touches on so many different things and you know one of the things i find the most interesting and again it, it it's this isn't geopolitical, but super important to think about, which is how does our water even affect our food system, right? So you've got, you know, I'm sure you've read or or all these in the US too, we've got a lot of these outbreaks of E. coli and and from romaine lettuce. And things like outbreaks cost, you know, the country billions of dollars a year, impacts, you know, 50 million people a year, a huge problem. But the issue is that you've got water running through, you've got runoff from like slaughterhouses, right? And these big industrial farming uh, operations and then flowing into, you know, farms like romaine lettuce farms where our, our food products get washed uh, and then packaged. And so you've got things like E. coli or salmonella or whatever packed in there and people get sick. So that very small sort of, you know, very you know dynamic yeah yeah that important but very kind of small thing just like in one country think about that kind of globally right who's in the top of a who's in the beginning part of a a water uh, a water stream and who's at the end and just how that pans out is very important to think about because there's so many things if you talk about food security um not food security in terms of our access to food but like warfare um, you know, you talk about geopolitics, like it's the same with an oil pipeline, right? Where is it running through? But the, the only difference is we don't really care. The oil is a little bit different where, you know, the, the, the purity of the oil is not really coming in question, right? Just the access. Mm-hmm. But in water, there's, it's a very difficult thing. And when you tie in uh, climate volatility to this, and this is sort of, you know, a, a real big um, thesis of mine, which is that what you're going to have is ecosystems that are not built to, okay, like when you've got a, let's say a, a warm climate in one place, uh, and let's say a moderate climate or, or cooler climate in one place, but once those things are turned on each other's heads, uh, you're going to get microbes and things growing in one place that shouldn't be there, right? You're, it's almost like an immune system. You're going to have no natural preparedness for these different things, these different viruses or fungus or bacteria to crop up. And because we all grow, we have a monoculture. So the entire world is basically growing like less than 10 different crops. You know, we could have a massive, a massive uh, risk on our hands of, of, you know, famine or just losing, uh, losing a huge staple of our, of our diet. Right. I mean, not to be doom and gloom here, but I think about, what are the risks and stuff? And so water touches all of that. So all you need is one water stream to flow through or to irrigate a huge, um, a huge swath of land. And guess what? All of your wheat just could be screwed. We all grow the same kind of wheat. Um, I don't know if you know this, but we're in a banana crisis right now. Oh. Um, yeah, no, I did not. A huge, a huge banana crisis. To be honest, it's, it's difficult to even get bananas sometimes um, at the Whole Foods here in New York City. Uh, there's a there's a fungus that's been ravaging the banana world uh, for a couple of years now. India, who who historically grows those tiny bananas, they've been trying to grow the big U.S. bananas that are in demand. It's just it's a very difficult uh, situation. And if you think about water again, it just it's the pipeline to everything, right? So if you think of things like contamination and who controls it, 
it a hundred percent is very important that we, we need to be the most diligent with our water system. And I don't think that's long-winded way of saying, I don't think that's happening. I think it needs to happen. And I think, I think financial, I'm not going to say regulation, but I'm going to say, you know, certain financial instruments can help potentially price water at a, in a way that we respect and protect it more. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's definitely really interesting. And, you know, moving on, were there other, um, I guess, esoteric teams that, that you played when, you know, you were a full-time portfolio manager Um, aside aside from these three? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're like on a, on a shorter term basis. One of the, one of the ones I always found interesting were, um, you know, we still, I used to look at things like, um, you know, how does, you know, just, just looking at Japan, some of the, some of the big conglomerates in Japan, I thought were really interesting. I, I don't know if you call this esoteric, but sort of the, the fact that they operate, especially these steel companies are operating on like, you know, 1% profit margins. They're like horribly, horribly managed completely. Like Japan was always very fascinating to me um, because there's so much debt um, just left right and center, uh, both from the government perspective on the corporate level, you know, um, but they seem to be hobbling along. And so, you know, everyone tries to short like JGBs and that doesn't work, but I'd always look at sort of buying these really cheap um, credit protections on some of these Japanese companies. That was, that, that was at both esoteric. It was, it had nothing to do with what I've been talking about, but, but definitely off the, off the beaten path, but, but super interesting. Uh, you know, it just, and again, it's like, it's funny because I think a lot of these things get portrayed in a way it's like, um, especially, you know, short sellers, uh, as a bad thing, but I think actual, I think it's good. I think it's, it's great that we have a market where you've got players in, in finance that there's an ability to call bullshit on things or to say, this could be run better. The fact that you can take the other side of that trade in in a, you know, kind of, in a variety of different ways is a, is a good thing. I think that can like keep companies can enforce the right the right decisions at, at you know on the corporate level um and again like on the bigger picture you know on the on the environmental level right so i mean you know again like to go back to water if we can price it properly maybe it it, it protects more of our land and protects more of our our longevity yep yep they're really interesting and moving on i wanted to talk a bit about I guess, general markets, uh, you know, what's going on today and get some of your thoughts on, you know, off the record, right before this interview, you know, we were discussing sort of the Tesla dynamic and I think you brought up a really good point. So, you know, you were, you were, you were talking a little bit about number one, the number one, uh, the way markets function has sort of changed in a way because everyone's long almost the same things and, you know, things are going up because everyone's long and, you know, you, you, you sort of applied that dynamic to Tesla and you know, I just wanted to uh, ask you to sort of, re-explain that dynamic so that, you know, our audience can get at that. It was really, really important. Yeah, sure. Look, again, I am not an expert on this at all. I don't own any Tesla stock. I, I, I'm, I'm as clueless as anyone. So I just want to make sure that that's clear. It's just my, my point was, and it's not Tesla, it's everything. It's just, we're in this really crazy market time, right? Um, when I graduated college, just to give you an example, we went almost immediately to the credit crisis and it scarred a lot of people my age in terms of thinking like, like, Oh my God, like I didn't even know this was on the table. Right. Like I didn't know printing trillions of dollars was ever even like a thing. Um, like I didn't know governments could even do this. So now when we're in this really insane sort of market dynamic, my point was, are things going up? You know what I mean? Is value being created or is capital moving into things essentially? It's a chicken and an egg kind of thing. Because capital is moving into things, so it's going up. In, do you know what I mean? Or things going up and attracting more capital. Yep. And, and whether it's Tesla or, or anything, literally like the entire, you know, much of the startup world, much of the private markets, public markets, it's really difficult to tell who's like what's driving what. But it doesn't mean that 
that the sort of both aren't happening as well, right? So um, one great side effect of this is that all this capital is going into fueling a lot of innovation. You know what I mean? So it, it, I think this is a net good thing. Like, like, you know, we do talk, you know, obviously the word bubble gets thrown around all the time, but if you think about it, like so much money is being poured into technology right now. Like that's good. Even if 3% of any of this works, that's still a massive hit. You know what I mean? Like, it's still like, there's so many shots on goal right now on, on, on a variety of different things that whatever comes out of it ultimately in the next, whatever survives the next decade or two will be really meaningful. So, you know, the other point, I, just directly specifically to your question about Tesla was I just found it yeah. fascinating that I read the other day that they make so much money off their selling carbon credits. Um, and I thought that was really, really interesting. So. So yeah, like, you know, it, it's hard to say if there's a chicken and egg thing yep. uh, in the markets now, but ultimately I think it's good. Awesome. And so why don't you get to the last part of our podcast, talk a bit about Anika and sort of the Anika story. So what, what, what exactly drew, what drove you to start Anika? And, you know, as we were speaking off the, off the record, you know, you sort of said Anika was a culmination of all the work you've done over the last no, or over the last sort of decade or so. So could you, could you just talk about number one, the Anika story, how it got started, you know, what you guys do? And uh, Yeah, sure. So I was actually, so I was working at a fund and um, I was making some investments into different things. And one of the things I'd come across was a TED talk by my co-founder <clears throat> um, about something called synthetic biology. So basically it's this idea that you could engineer biology and you could, didn't need a Pfizer lab to do it. People were doing it in their garage, basically. And that totally blew my mind. <clears throat> and at the same time, one of the things that I was involved with was a food product that like invested and sort of co-founded. And we had a recall. And I went to, I just sort of on my wormhole sort of Google searches, was like, okay, I saw this TED talk and realized that this person was in Brooklyn and I met her. She's not my co-founder, Ellen, but I went to her basically, can we solve a simple problem, but it's a big problem, like a traceability issue with biology. And we sort of swirled some ideas around. And what we came up with was this concept that you could use a, mi a microbe. The microbes are all over you. They're all over everything, right? It's essentially the biggest data set in the world. And there's microbes on, on everything. Only 1%, I think, or less, is actually bad for you. So generally speaking, they're great. We take probiotics. You know, microbes basically run, run, run the planet in terms of uh, agriculturally speaking and things like that. So could we use them to actually solve a problem where we know where one thing started and where it ended? Traceability problem, the way a barcode can, can do that. Um, and we figured out a way to use microbial spores, engineered spores to create, uh, to, to basically contain a little string of information in its DNA, like a little watermark that we could fish out. So if you've got lettuce, for example, to go back to my romaine lettuce problem, if you've got a recall, um, or if, you, if you've got lettuce, we can tag the lettuce so you can wash it in this water and spray it. And then you can go through an entire supply chain can be washed, mixed, can be cooked, it can be heated up, um, mixed with other bags, and we can take each leaf and figure out where it came from. And the, the reason that's so great, and I'll tie it into everything else I was saying in a second, the reason that's so important is because it now connects the physical world with the digital world in a sense, right? So we can take a serial number and we can sort of embed it onto a natural product in a way that's never been done before. And we can do it on a microscopic basis, right? On a microscopic level. And so why is that interesting? It's interesting because right now every recall costs like $10 million. It takes two months to figure out where it came from. We can do that in like a day. And so think about the pricing of insurance risk, which is how I've spent most of my career. Um, 
we can now ensure, let's say, that supply chain with so much more accuracy, so much better underwriting. That means lower rates to farmers, let's say, lower recall insurance costs, um, lower probability of payout. It's It's been my sort of my vision for, for years of how do we merge these two worlds of, of, of markets and, and sort of financial instruments with the physical world around us. And this can act as a bridge. So, you know, <clears throat> we've done work with some of the biggest diamond companies in the world, um, with one of the biggest produce associations uh, in the country. Um, we've raised, you know, considerable amount of, of VC money with some from top VCs like SOSB, Draper Associates, um, um, Added Ventures. So just some, we've attracted some real capital. We've built out a huge lab in Brooklyn, um, attracting great talent. And it's just been a fantastic way to, to combine you know, all, of these, all of these experiences I've had. Yep, awesome. And you know, what, uh, what exactly um, makes you know Annika's you know sort of methodology to price insurance or price like ins- uh, price like the risk uh, relevant to insurance uh, different? Yeah. So if you think of uh, again, if you think of a food recall, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Or you think of crop insurance or food recall, whatever it is. How do you distinguish two identical products? Right. Once something is left the bag, how do you take two leaves of lettuce and figure out who owns who? Like whose policy belongs to who, mm-hmm. who's covered, who's not covered. It's yep. impossible. Two, two grains of rice, two coffee beans. Yeah. You know, with our tags, we can actually do those things. Or if you think of this ESG story, something that's big that's happening now is non-safety ESG recalls. So for example, um, uh, you know, is this sustainable or isn't it? Was this done in a humane way? how do you validate that? How does a big retailer, you know, take, have confidence in what they're buying? So the packaging doesn't tell you enough. And a lot of times things are removed from packaging, they're mixed together. And so we can help literally link each of those physical products to, um, to the carrier, to the farm, to the batch number. Absolutely. And before I wrap up the podcast, I wanted to ask you, you know, are there any you know, themes or questions or anything that you know, we haven't covered that you would like to talk about? No, I think that's it. For, I mean, for me, I think that the two biggest ones are climate volatility, which I think is on everyone's mind now. Yep. Uh, and, I think, um, and I think the pension crisis, those are the two big ones, I think are, yep. I mean, if you, I don't know if you lump water into there, but but, but, but those are the big themes for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, it was really interesting this, uh, you know, hearing you talk about some of the, I guess, almost unique themes that yeah, yeah, that you buy, that you uh, explained in more detail in your book. And uh, I had a lot of fun and I really enjoyed it. So, you know, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Vishal. It was, it was, it was fantastic. Thank you so much. And thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.